0: Well, today we're continuing with our Esther's uh, sermon series. We are currently just working our way just very briefly through the Old Testament book of Esther. And if you've been with us uh, uh, the past few weeks, uh, you you know that it's a story that tells how God rescues his people under Persian rule. The Israelites are exiled. They're not living at home. They are not... uh, well, some are. Some have, re- they, they were exiled, they were in captivity, and they've been released. And so some go home to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. Others stay in, in Persia, in captivity, like Mordecai and Esther. And so the Esther is a story of how God rescues his people when they are still in captivity and when they choose to be in captivity. And so there's a lot of things going on here in the book of Esther. We look at Mordecai, we look at Esther, the heroes of the story, but we never see them praying. We never see them uh, referring to God's covenant or his word. And we never even hear God's name mentioned. In fact, God is hidden throughout the entire book of Esther. And today we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 3 and chapter 6. And we're specifically looking at the antagonist of the story, the villain of this story. And what we are going to be seeing, and this is how I introduced Esther two weeks ago, is that Esther is a book about power. It is a book about power. And so today, we're picking up that theme and to really consider uh, the, the deadly consequences of power as well through the person of Haman. And so we're going to be learning a lot about Haman today. So let's dive into God's word. This is Esther chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. Then we're jumping over to Esther 6 verses 1 through 13. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Then jumping to Esther 6, verses 1 through 13. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found, written, how Mordecai had told about Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who was in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is here standing in the court. And and the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man who the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man, the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead, let him and let in the And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his home, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And his wise men and his wife Zeresh said, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. And now as we look at your word and consider your, your word for our lives, we ask that your spirit would work in our hearts, that we would walk always with you. And in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So the book of Esther is a remarkably uh, uh, entire book of reversals. And we have just seen in this text, in our readings today, how this is an amazing reversal. And as we're reading through these two chapters, I hope you chuckled. I hope you you thought, hey, that's funny. And uh, we're going to be looking at some of these uh, humorous dynamics today. But the author intends for us to find uh, many of the the elements of the story as Funny. That's how Hebrews would write their, their, their stories. But the, the thing is that as we're reading this story, if you were, were part of the original audience, that this is even the first time you've, you're ever really even considering the book of Esther, there's a lot of surprises here before you. One of the surprises before you is something that we looked at last week. Here's Mordecai at the end of chapter 2, and he just rescued King Ahasuerus from assassination. He rescued him. And and Persian emperors were known for their generosity. Like in Esther 1, for example, there's a six-month party going on. The king says, like, hey, here's my here's drink, here's my food, have at it. In fact, when I take a drink, you don't have to drink, but you can if you want to. And then afterwards, he throws a, a party, a, for a week-long party for the entirety of Susa. And the, and the point is, is that the Persian emperors were incredibly generous. And so the expectation of going into chapter 3 is that Mordecai is going to be honored. He's going to become the, the prime minister of Persia that's not the case that's surprising to us that, that that doesn't happen Haman this guy comes out of nowhere that's the other surprising part he comes out of nowhere and he becomes a prime minister but the other dynamic is that there's actually five years of time be, behind Esther 2 and Esther 3 so we're actually like we're moving along time-wise very quickly and, and actually now the, the rest of the events of Esther really occur within the next year, year and a half or so. And so, but like as we dive into this text, we need to consider who who Haman is. He comes out of nowhere. Last week, we considered Mordecai and Esther. We really, and the week before, we looked at King Ahasuerus. And so today, we're going to be looking at really the the final main character of the book of, of, of Esther. And the reality is, as we look at Haman, specifically Haman the Agagite, we actually know a lot about him. We know his heritage, but even as I say we know his heritage, we also know Mordecai's and Esther's heritage. But there's also some other dynamics about Haman that we learn. Like we know Haman actually far more better than we do Esther and Mordecai. That was very surprising. That, that's something that I realized this week. Because we see Haman go home, we know his wife's name, Zeresh. We don't know if H- Mordecai is even married. And not only are, do we know his, Haman's wife's name, we also know the, even the conversations that occurred within his home. We know the types of friends he hung out with. We don't know that even for Esther or Mordecai. So we actually know a great deal about Haman. And very specifically, um, here, here's, the, here's the, the simple picture of Haman. Biblically, Haman is the embodiment of the deadliness of pride. Haman is the embodiment of what it, what it looks like when power corrupts. Absolutely. That's, this is who Haman is. And so let's really consider who Haman is. And as we consider this question, we're going to discover the relevance of this chapter and Esther uh, in our lives. So who is Haman? Well, I've mentioned his heritage already, but, and his heritage is incredibly important. Like we read as he's introduced in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 1, Haman the Agagite. Who who in the world are the Agagites? Like I'm not even sure I, I can pronounce that properly, Agagites. So and and again, Haman's coming out of nowhere. And so when we read this, the author is actually giving us a very important piece of information concerning his identity. So who are the Agagites? Right here, right here, and. The Agagites are descendants of King Agag, A-G-A-G, Agag. Agag. And uh, King Agag was a, the king of the Amalekites. And this is actually incredibly important because the Amalekites, uh, historically, when, when Israel was coming out of Egypt in the ex- Exodus, uh, they, they come to Mount Sinai, and as they are coming to Mount Sinai, they are attacked by the Amalekites. But the Amalekites do not attack Israel from the front, where, like, in any really respectable uh, rules of warfare would, would apply. The Amalekites, instead, attack from their rear, where they attack, where they intentionally are attacking those who are stragglers, those who are elderly, those who are weak, where women and children are. The, 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 the strong men, really, the, the the strongest soldiers are at the front, so they attack from from the rear. And so right here, we actually give get a picture of the Amalekites that they are going about guerrilla warfare and terrorists. They're, they're seeing this nomadic people leave Egypt en masse, and they're like, this is a great opportunity for us to attack them and just get rich. And then even later on, we see, we see the Amalekites specifically led by King Agag in in the, the book of 1 Kings, when King Saul is king. And so, so Haman is a direct descendant of King Agag. And this is important. Like another detail that we know about Mordecai is that Mordecai is a Benjamite. And who is a distant relative of King Saul, who is also a Benjamite in in First. 1 Samuel, not 1 Kings, but 1 Samuel. And so right here, we're getting a picture that there is more to this story than just Israel in captivity. We're getting a picture that Esther is, is, that this entire book is about this cosmic quest to annihilate God's people. and, And this is actually going to be embodied by Haman, and, and just one last thing about the Amalekites, and this is what one Jewish scholar wrote about the Amalekites, says about, about the entire Amalekite way of life. He says this, that we have no idea what kind of gods the Amalekites worshipped. None are names. What we do know is that whatever gods they worshipped, that whatever gods belonged to Amalek, as people they did not fear any moral boundaries established by them. So the Amalekites are a people within the entire story of Scripture that are going to do whatever it takes to get ahead. The ends justify the means. And Haman, again, is the living embodiment of that. He is, in fact, like I said a few moments ago, he's a descendant of King Agag. And so as we come to the book of Esther, we are seeing that Mordecai and Esther are standing with all of Israel against the forces of, the, of w- the world and history that seek to annihilate God's people from history. And so as we come to, into our text today, King Ahasuerus promotes Haman to be essentially his prime minister, his vizier, his right-hand man in, in Persia. And so the king goes on and commands all the people to bow down before him. In verse 2, he says that all the king's servants bowed down to him and paid homage to him, and for the king had so commanded concerning him. And right there, this, this strikes us as odd. This should strike us as odd. Um, in America, we don't have this uh, culture of bowing, of showing deference and respect. Um, but when cultures that have bowing as a regular part of their, of their way of life, it's instinctive. It's just like there you see an an elderly person someone older than you and you bow you see a person in authority you bow like that's it's instinctive it's a way of life but that's not what happened here in this persian story in fact what happens here is that for Haman to even just be bowed to and to honored the king had to instruct his servants to do that That that's And That's an insight that commentators and and other scholars look at and say, man, Haman must have been some obnoxious person for the king to go out there and say, hey, bow to this man. But the conflict, there's some conflict right here. We have seen conflict all throughout the book of Esther. The conflict arises when Mordecai does not bow. Mordecai resists. Mordecai defies the king's command. Mordecai says no. And if you've been with us the past two weeks, that's surprising. Because if you say no, you're banished. You're exiled. If you say no, you're gone. You fall out of favor. And Mordecai's ambition has been to achieve more failure. More, not more failure, more favor. That's what Mordecai's ambition is. And so he tells his his adopted daughter, Esther, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. But five years passes. Something happens in Mordecai. He tells these guards, hey, I'm a Jew. That's why I don't bow. Wait, what? That is meant to be surprising to us. This is out of character with the Mordecai that we know from chapter 2. It's completely out of character. Mordecai has an awakening of sorts. And we're not pick that up next week. But Mordecai has an awakening of sorts, and he he is changed for the rest of the book at this point. And, but, and so, but going back to Haman, because I'm going to focus on Haman. We'll pick Mordecai up next week. But Mordecai's refusal to bow, to honor him, bothers Haman. And so we read that uh, Mordecai's defiance causes Haman to become enraged, how he's filled with fury. And, and, and so, but we read that when Haman learns that Mordecai is a Jew, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He's like, It's not enough for me to punish this one guy, I'm going to wipe off his entire people from the face of the earth. Like, well, that escalated quickly. Like, it. Did and it's 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 striking uh, once again, and but like as we like just think about Haman's thought process with me for for me a bit. He he and like and we know he's a great politician. He comes out of nowhere. The all the names that we we read in Esther one, Haman's not there. Esther two, Haman's not there. He comes out of nowhere. We know he's a very skilled, shrewd politician. And as he's walking through Susa, he's having thousands of people bow to him, except there's Mordecai over there, and that bothers him. That bothers him. Instead of being humble, instead of being content, his heart is filled with rage. And and again, this kind of goes back to the idea that, hey, Haman's pretty obnoxious if must be, he must be pretty obnoxious if he, the king has to command his servants to bow down to Haman. So we begin to learn, see something about Haman's character as well. How he's bothered by a person not bowing to him. How he's bothered uh, as well in, in other ways. But the thing to see about Haman is this, and I, and I teased this very early uh, on, earlier on. But Haman is the living embodiment of pride. Haman is power hungry, and he is going to do anything and everything to get more of it. Again, the ends justify the means. If he can get more power by annihilating an entire people from the Persian Empire, who cares? He gets more power. He he, he gets more power. And just to really show this very clearly, so uh, what happens next is that uh, like, we, we didn't read uh, Esther 3, 7 to the end of the chapter. But what's going on is that after that, when, the, when Haman once decides to kill an entire, all the Jews from, from the face of the world, um, they pick a date, they cast lots, they cast pure, and that's how we get the name Purim, um, which we'll p- hear again next week. But the date is chosen for when uh, the Jews are going to be wiped off. And actually, the date that's given is actually the eve of Passover, which is another little tidbit. And like this just goes back to the question, is God going to rescue his people in Esther? That's the whole large question. But look at what Haman and the king do in verse 15. After the edict goes out, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and the Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Haman does not care, nor does the king. Haman does not care about the city and the peoples that he is there to serve. He just wants to get more power. He does not lose sleep over the fact that he's going to commit genocide. That does not bother him whatsoever. What does bother him is that one man won't bow down to him. That gives us a picture of, like, Haman's mind and his heart. There's no denying it. Haman's evil. He is the embodiment of pride. He is the embodiment of someone who's power-hungry. He is the embodiment of evil. And let me just pause right there. Because that... Perhaps maybe striking to you to even just think about this. Uh, think about Haman in these terms: that to say that someone is evil. We live in a cultural moment where we even ask that such a we ask a question: Is there even such a thing as evil? Like this is this is why we need a pause right here because here I am just pointing at Haman, and saying he's evil. How can I do that? Biblically speaking, there. Biblically speaking. Evil, uh, well, when we look at God's word, God created the world to be good and beautiful and perfect. But evil comes about into the world through our rebellion against God. Evil and our rebellion, our sin, are, are clearly connected so that we can look at the world and say, the problem with the world is that there is evil in the world. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as the as people who are seek, to, to, we are called to seek the good of our community, we actually have to be able to say, this is good and, and this is evil." Because as, as followers of Jesus, we're actually called to seek justice, to fight against injustice, to fight against oppression, and to seek the widow's cause, and, and so on and so forth. Like we, we are actually called to, to look at the world and we need to seek good. We need to see evil. We need, like there's many things in the world to celebrate and to affirm, but there's many things that we look at the world where we see uh, shootings, mass shootings in New Zealand. We see hate crimes all over. We see genocide in Rwanda, in Germany. We see, even within the ancient book of Esther, we see attempted genocide against the, the, the Jews. We can look all, all over the world, and, but when we even look in our hearts, we see evil. We see lustful eyes. We see uh, greedy hearts. We see prideful ambition. All of these things are connected to our rebellion against God, and that is evil. And that is evil, and so there, let me just think about this even d- more deeply for us. Because evil has many ways of expressing itself. When we look at the whole story of Esther, look at the whole story of Esther very briefly, we see Ahasuerus being manipulated by Haman's power, power-hungry heart. We see him being manipulated. He's being complicit in, in it. And But when we look at Haman, that, there's also a, a, different, there's a difference be, between him and Ahasuerus. See, Haman is... Well I'll put it this way there's a potential there, excuse me there's a difference between potential for evil in the human heart and there, there there's a difference between potential with the cultivation of evil in our hearts. But being having the potential for evil and having the cultivation for evil are two different things. Hazueris is a fool. He's able to be manipulated, he is complicit in Haman's evil, he is being charmed by him. And Haman is saying all the things that the king wants to hear. Like, think about this. Uh, Ahasuerus just, like, had this failure of a military campaign on epic proportions. He failed to conquer Greece. His treasury is empty. And so Haman comes to him and says, Hey, you know what? I will, re- I will personally refill the treasury of Persia, 10,000 talents, if, if you sign this edict. So here's Ahasuerus. He's like... Oh, I can get money again? Okay, sign me up. And the king, Ahasuerus, never once asks, who are these people who seek to overthrow me? He never asks that question. And so Ahasuerus allows himself to be manipulated because he's being passive. But Haman, on the other hand, is actively nurturing evil in his heart. He fantasizes about killing Mordecai. He fantasizes and conspires to kill the entire Jewish people. And if, as you keep reading, you will see this, these very intimate conversations w- between him and his wife. And we see him sur- surrounding himself with people who encourage evil in his life. He, he surrounds himself with people who encourage evil in his life. And so as we just look at this, the, the call to us as Christians on a very brief way, is that as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we actually need to kill the sin in our life. We need to kill the sin in our life. There some old English writers, Puritans, they use the word mortify, and I like that word. Like this, this one guy, John Owen, uh, he wrote this book called The Mortification of Sin, and it's this whole idea of, of putting sin to death, otherwise it's going to kill you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you is what John Owen said. And when we think about Jesus' words, uh, the greatest commandment was love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. This is, these are the greatest commandments. These are the things that we're called to just give our lives to. But if you have sinful thoughts, then we are called to take them captive and give them to God. If we we are watching TV shows or movies or listening to music that shape our imagination in sinful ways, then we need to stop consuming that media. If we are surrounding ourselves with people, with friends, who are influencing us to nurture evil in our lives and our imagination, then we need new friends. This is the call of being a follower of Christ. We actually need to be killing the sin in our life. We need to acknowledge and look out for the influences that influence and shape us. And we need to put those away. That's one of the calls to our life as we just consider Haman here. But just continuing to look at Haman, we later on get a picture of his heart for us. This is jumping ahead to Esther 6 here. Because, um, again, like Mordecai is bothering Uh, Haman and so Haman says hey this guy's bothering me what shall I do and his wife and his, his counselor say you know what build a gallows 50 feet tall and go ask the king for permission to kill him and so Haman goes to to ask the king that very question and then that's where we pick up Esther 6 and the king can't sleep that night either and so he says, you know what, bring out the book of memorable deeds. The king, that, that's, that's funny there, because the king can't even remember things. So he needs to have someone write them down. Five years has passed, and so um, he discovers that Mordecai saved his life. He's like, wait, was he ever honored some way? And so the king, again, doesn't really know how to honor him, to show his appreciation for him. And so he says, hey, is anyone else lurking in the courtyard who can I ask to, for some wise counsel? And it's Haman. He's like, go get Haman. Bring him in here. And so that's the, the, the conversation that we're, we're getting here. And so he says to, to Haman, like cutting off Haman, before, he could even, before Haman could even ask him his request, he's like, hey, I got a question for you. How can I honor the person who I delight in? How can I honor someone? And so this is where we get a picture of Haman's heart because like, hmm. I wonder who he's talking about. It has to be me. Who else does the king delight in? Like that's we're seeing right now that Haman is a full blown narcissist right here. He is thinking only of himself, and he's like, "Okay, this is me. How do I?" And so we're we're getting a picture of Haman's heart, and his heart tells us some things. But he says, "You know what? Have some of your clothes, your robes, be given to him that he may wear. Your horse." Let him ride on it. One of your nobles, let him lead you around. Like these details, like we may think of this and be like, what, go to a thrift store? Like wear the king's hand-me-downs? How is this honoring the someone whom the king delights in? Well, these are some very ancient the, uh, practices that are going on. But, like, here's just uh, two other biblical examples that showed the significance of the king's robes being put on someone else. Like, there's, there's two examples. And one example is in Genesis when Pharaoh has his right-hand man, name of Joseph, right? And the, the Pharaoh says, here's my, my robes, and he puts them on Joseph. Right there, what we see in that specific example is that Joseph is actually being seen as the pharaoh. That, hey, the pharaoh's authority is embodied in, in Joseph. That's what's going on there. So on one level, Haman's saying like, hey, give some of your authority to another, to this person whom you delight. in. So again, we're seeing Haman say, I want the power, I'm, I want that. But the second text is in the, in the life of David. David um, is a brilliant warrior, a general. Um, so like his, Saul is king. And, but the unique thing about Saul and David, just if you don't know the biblical story, is that uh, God said, you know what? So I don't want any of Saul's sons to be kings, including jo- Jonathan, who is the, the presumed heir. And so God says, I want David. And David and Jonathan have this brilliant friendship. And, and, but then something happens. Jonathan comes to David, and he takes his kingly, princely robes, and he says, these are yours. He puts them on David, and he says, like, you know what? You should be the king. You know, I love you, and I honor you, and you should be the king. And so what for a king... To put his robes on another person is the demonstration that the king loves this man. The king delights this man. That the king trusts this man. And so Haman is thinking to himself in his heart. It's like, you know, if the people would see the emperor loving me and delighting me and trusting me, then the people will respect me. Then Mordecai would bow down to me. They will love me. The people will love me because the king also loves me as well. And so this is actually where we ought to see Haman, and actually in our lives, that when we are don't we'll be very honest about our hearts, we should see Haman uh, in our hearts as well. Because for Haman, for each and every single one of us, our value does not come from God. That this is how we sinfully think, our how we functionally think, that our value does not come from God or himself or himself, but our value actually comes from others, from the applause of others, from the recognition of others. That's actually what Haman's living for. He is power hungry, but he's also living for the applause and recognition of others. He, in other words, he is terribly insecure, and he masks that by being by seeking power. And again, let me just reiterate: at this point, we should see ourselves here, because the truth is, we too are insecure we are an insecure people and our life is full of insecurity here's just one example uh it's a movie it's it's called eighth grade it's on it's on amazon prime if that if that that makes you curious but the movie eighth grade follows an eighth grader Um, during her last week of of eighth eighth grade she's going through some finals and so of course there's just this celebration about the end of the school year from pool parties and everything else but there's also those very awkward moments when your classmates if you remember these moments you and your classmates vote who's the most likely to succeed who's the most quiet who is like who has the best smile right and, like, the one that no one ever wanted to get was the most quiet, right? And so the character of eighth grade is a girl named uh, Kayla, and she gets this award, the most quiet. And you see the, this internal monologue, dialogue, where she's like, how in the world am I the most quiet person? I'm very talkative. Do people even know me? Do people even like me? Like, she asks all these questions. and But what we see very clearly is that she is driven by these questions and because she's She's a really insecure young woman, and her insecurity drives her to make mistakes, to do some foolish things by pretending to be someone whom she's not, to talk in ways and that she doesn't. And so later on, uh, towards the, the very end of the movie, we see like, her insecurity driving her to have a very intimate conversation with her father. She 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 the the specific occasion is that she pulls up a time capsule that she made two years earlier when she was in sixth grade. She watches the video that she made of herself and she goes to her father and says, Here's this box, this time capsule. Can you help me burn it? And he's like, Sure. And he goes with her and he's being a very engaged dad. And he's like, as they put it in the fire, he asks her, What what was in it? And she's like, All my hopes, all my dreams. And she goes on and asks him this question, and it comes out of nowhere, but it's in this beautiful moment of, of intimate vulnerability, and she says, do I make you sad? And right here, we just get this amazing picture of her life, how she's, like, driven by just this insecurity. Am I loved? Am I desired? Do I make my father proud? And he says, no, not at all. Do I seem sad? And she's like, no. Well, what do, why would you think? you make me sad and she gives an answer but he goes on to say you know being your dad makes me so happy you don't know how happy you make me i can't describe it it's easy to love you it's so easy to be proud of you that's so what we see the father saying is like i love you i delight in you i am proud of you and these are the words that we read in Zechariah where that God sings his praise over us that God delights in us that we are the apple of God's eye so from that moment for Kayla in the movie everything changed she goes back to school she graduates the next day she she confronts people who are mean to her and like she's her character changes but this, we don't like to admit that we are an insecure people. Because insecurity is a sign of weakness. That insecurity, this is this is what one friend of mine wrote um, in, in this article that, that he's like, you know what, if when you're a pastor and you acknowledge that like, hey, you need to see a counseling, you need to go get uh, see a therapist, you need antidepressants, you know, when you're a pastor and you admit these things, you have to face the fear that you're you'll be fired. Because people don't want brokenness and vulnerability around them. That's the world we live in. Because we live in a world where we are so paralyzed by insecurity that we don't want to admit that we are broken, flawed people. We want to be seen as strong, reliable, and competent. But the sad thing is that when we say these things, when we insist on being seen as strong and secure and when we insist on these things we actually close ourselves off to change and transformation. And this is why I say this. When we close ourselves off to vulnerability, when we are afraid to to face our weakness, we close ourselves off from God's transforming grace. Because this is what we read about in 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may be upon me. You see, friends, our insecurity rises from sin. Our insecurity arises because we have been alienated and disconnected from God. But the good news is that Jesus has restored us to God. Jesus has reconciled us to God where we are now his children, where we are, where Jesus even says, you know what, you are my friends. That the the truth is that is that god knows you and loves you and what we see in jesus is that jesus dies upon us for he dies upon the cross for our sins jesus does all these things and the reason why is because jesus because god loves you but simultaneously to that god knows you god knows everything about you yet he loves you He knows all the sin in your life. He knows all your past. He knows your future. And yet he loves you. And Jesus went to the cross so that he would always have life with you. And and friends, this perspective reshapes everything about our, our lives because our love, I'll put it this way, our security in God is sure because Jesus has died for us. God knows us and he loves us. And so this perspective should shape, reshape our entire lives. See, when we are insecure in our lives, and we face insecurity all the time, like we may wonder, hey, do my coworkers like me? Or am I going to be seen as a failure in this? Or am I loved? Or is she, he going to leave me? Whenever, like these are all examples of insecurity. And, it, it's, and when we have these moments of insecurity... When we come face to face with the insecurity in our lives, that's actually an invitation. That is an invitation to come closer to God where we come to God with all our anxiety, with all our, sh- our shame, with all our guilt. And so the next time you, you face these moments, that is a call for you. God is working in your life saying, come to me. Come and hear that I love you. Come and hear that I am your good father who will take care of you. The next time you question whether or not you bring anything of value, this is the truth I want you to remember, that God includes your story within his story. Next time you wonder, um, do I have anything uh, to, to bring to the table? God brings you to his table to eat and drink and with him to always have life with you because God loves you. That's actually... The, the, one of the amazing things that we be, we we begin to see here in the book of A- Esther, and the reality is is that, friends, the good news is that you are secure in God. Your life with Him is secure in Him because He loves you and He knows you. Let's pray, Father.